This is Mark, the pen for Peter. Mark's writing on behalf of Peter here. Mark, writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, pens the following words. And he, Jesus, began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed. And after three days, rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter, Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he, Jesus, rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but rather on the things of man. Brothers and sisters, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God, finish the sentence, stands forever. You may be seated. The way that we're going to look at the text this morning is by way of the two scenes or the two movements in the text. Let me go ahead and give them to you off the front here. This is number one and number two on your outline. I would encourage you to take notes. You'll listen better if you do. Number one, the revelation. This is where Jesus is going to reveal his mission. And I'll submit to you that his revelation of his mission does not get any clearer. He is crystal clear about his mission. So we see Jesus reveal his mission in verse 31 And then secondly, we'll see a series of rebukes. The revelation first, and then the rebukes. Let's turn our attention first to verse 31, the revelation. Look back there at your Bibles, and he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed, and after three days rise again. Now, Jesus begins verse 31 here with this short little phrase, And he, Jesus, began to teach them. He, Jesus, began to teach them. This is an interesting phrase because Jesus has been teaching his disciples all along, hasn't he? I mean, from the moment that Jesus called his disciples along the shore of the Sea of Galilee and said, come follow me and I'll make you fishers of men, Jesus, from that point to where we are in the text this morning, has been teaching his men. He's been teaching his disciples. But the content of Jesus' teaching takes a dramatic shift beginning here in verse 31 through the end of Mark's gospel. This marks a turning point to a new content in Jesus' teaching. You know, three times in Mark's gospel, Jesus tells his disciples that he's going to suffer and be killed and then rise from the dead. We see the first here in our text this morning, Mark chapter 8, verse 31. But just turn over a chapter in your Bible there and look at Mark chapter 9. He'll do it again in Mark chapter 9, and then he'll do it a third and final time in Mark chapter 10. Turn over and find Mark chapter 9, verses 31 and 32. Very similar language here that we find in our text for this morning. Mark 9, 31 and 32. He, Jesus, was teaching his disciples and saying to them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days, he will rise. I love that there. That's not a question. That is a statement. He will rise. But they, the disciples, did not understand the saying, and they were afraid to ask him. Look just one chapter to the right again, Mark chapter 10. Mark chapter 10, verses 32 through 34. And they were on the road going 
up to Jerusalem. Now, here's an interesting thing. Let me pause here. Jesus and his disciples have just gone geographically up toward Caesarea Philippi, right? So that's the northernmost uh, Jewish territory that Jesus will be in before the cross. So when we see this in our Bible going up to Jerusalem, that's up in elevation. Okay, it's not up as in due north or the direction north. Up in elevation. He and his disciples were on the road going up, climbing up to Jerusalem. And Jesus was walking ahead of them. And they were amazed. And those who followed were afraid. And taking the twelve again, he began to tell them what was to happen to him, saying, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. Mark adds a little extra detail here. And they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And after three days, no question, this is a statement, he will rise. So three times between now and the end of Mark's gospel, Jesus will foretell his impending death, his coming death. Without a doubt, when Jesus spoke of a messiahship connected with suffering and death, his statements were almost incomprehensible to the disciples. I mean, if Jesus, put yourself in their shoes for a minute. Put yourself in their minds for a second. If Jesus was the Christ, as Peter had just confessed, if he was the Messiah, the anointed one, the Son of Man, then why in the world is he going to be rejected and killed by Israel's religious leaders? Keep in mind that that the disciples have rolling in their minds an Old Testament tape reel. We've all seen an old tape reel, right? Projection, that's what the disciples have going on in their minds here. And the tape reel is reminding them that the Old Testament scriptures promised a Messiah that would come in sweepingly and defeat Israel's enemies and set up a new kingdom where he would rule with an iron rod. That's that's their view of the coming Messiah. That's their thinking when 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 it comes to or pertains to the anointed one. And so when Jesus right after Peter confesses that he is the Christ, the Messiah, the anointed one, follows that up by saying the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected and killed by the scribes and the elders and the chief priest. They don't have a good context for this. This does not fit neatly in any one of the boxes in their minds. They don't have a file for it. It was not their expectation. It's not what the Old Testament tape reel was playing in their mind. They're left staggering, almost stammering in mind, trying to connect the dots uh, in their feebleness as to how their Old Testament view of the Messiah was going to mesh with Jesus' statement that he would be killed at the hands of Israel's religious leaders. I mean, don't turn here. These are probably... Too familiar. At least one of them will be a familiar text to you. You can write them in the margin if you'd like here, but just stick here in, in Mark for a second. But, but consider again what this Old Testament tape reel was playing in the minds of these disciples. Consider Isaiah 9, chapter, or, uh, verses 6 and 7. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be on his shoulder. Remember, uh, Israel and the disciples who are Jews, are are expecting a political leader. 
one on whose shoulders the government will rest, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, and the increase of his government shall be seen. And of peace there will be no end. And on the throne of David and over his kingdom, he will establish and uphold with justice and righteousness his kingdom from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. This is what they're thinking when it comes to the Messiah. This is what the tape reel in their mind is playing. These are the expectations that they have. Consider this tape playing, Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like the Son of Man. Now there's familiar language. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples and nations and languages should serve him, and his dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall never pass away. And his kingdom is one that shall not be destroyed. This is the tape reel that's playing in the disciples' minds. And so when Jesus says, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the scribes and the elders and the chief priests and be killed, they just can't do the mental math as to how that adds up. We should note that many of the Old Testament prophets had written concerning the Lord's suffering servant. Consider Isaiah 53 or Psalm 22, for instance. Isaiah's words are familiar probably to most of us. He, Jesus, was despised, or I'm sorry, rather, he, the suffering servant in Isaiah 53, was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. He was one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken and smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and by his wounds we are healed. You see, Isaiah 53, Psalm 22, and in a number of other places, the Old Testament is clear about the Lord's suffering servant. The problem is, up to this point, there is no evidence that the suffering servant spoken of in the Old Testament was ever connected with the Messiah in Jewish minds. See, this is where it's important for us to kind of get in their context, to live in their world for just a moment. They had a political view of the coming Messiah, the one who would reign, whose kingdom would last forever and ever. His dominion could never be thwarted. For days unending, he would set up and rule from his throne. That was their view of the Messiah, the anointed one who was to come. But then also there, there was spoken of in the Old Testament scriptures, the suffering servant. Isaiah 53, Psalm 22, and various other texts. But there's very little evidence that the suffering servant spoken of in the Old Testament, again, was ever connected in Jewish minds with the Messiah. Much more had been written about the Messiah's glory. This is exactly what led to the disconnect in the disciples' minds. When Jesus finally comes in and begins to speak about his messianic status and his impending death, he didn't claim the common understanding 
of the day. Or rather, he redefined it and he practically redefined it beyond recognition. What the disciples didn't understand, and Jesus would begin teaching, is that glory would come through suffering. Glory was going to come through suffering. And to be sure, there is a lot that we need to learn when it comes to that exact same lesson. Glory comes through suffering. The cross comes before the crown. It was true for Jesus, and it is true for his disciples and his followers today as well. Well, notice this title here we see. Jesus refers to himself as the Son of Man. He began to teach them. We have a context now for what that means. He began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things. This expression has appeared only twice uh, in Mark's gospel to this point, uh, both in Mark chapter 2. We see it the first time when, when Jesus healed the paralytic, right? When Jesus told the paralyzed man to get up and to walk, that was the first time that we see this title, Son of Man, appear. And Jesus said, so that you might know the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed and go home. That the Son of Man has authority to forgive sins. We see it again at the end of chapter 2 where Jesus and his disciples are kind of being taken to task over the Sabbath. And this is where Jesus says, speaking of the Sabbath, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. A very interesting title. This is not one that's used super often, at least to this point. It will be used more frequently from uh, this point forward in Mark's Gospel. But the title Son of Man was especially suited for Jesus' mission. Why is that? Well, the reason behind that is because this particular title was, was relatively free of political connotations, which helped to alleviate some of the false expectations that were prevalent in Jesus' day. It was kind of a neutral title, the Son of Man, free of political connotations. At the same time, it was rather ambiguous, almost like a parable, which helped to preserve the, the balance between concealment and disclosure, which Jesus has been operating with. Concealing? Disclosing, concealing, disclosing as it pertains to his life and mission. But perhaps most importantly, this title, Son of Man, combines the elements of suffering and glory in a way that uh, no other designation or no other title could. It served to define Jesus' unique role as the Messiah. And we'll see it again. Uh, the first two places that we see it again, as a matter of fact, are in the very next two predictions of Jesus' death. The one that we already read in Mark chapter 9 and the one in Mark chapter 10. The Son of Man must suffer many things. If you're taking notes there, underline, highlight, star, bracket, whatever you need to do to draw attention to that little word, must. Jesus began to teach them. We know the content now. The Son of Man, that is his title, especially suited for his messianic mission. And then we get this little word, must. He must suffer many things and be rejected. Now, the word must there, it's the Greek word, the, the Greek verb rather, D. It means that something is binding or something is necessary, something is proper or something is inevitable. 
It communicates compulsion. In this particular case, or this particular instance, it refers to Jesus' driving compulsion to live out God's divine plan for his messianic mission. Jesus saying, I must. There's no other way. There's no other option. I must, he says. It communicates Jesus' perfect submission to his Father's divine will. God said it. It must be so. I must and will do it. What Jesus is communicating in this little three-letter Greek verb here is the necessity of the cross. I must. The Son of Man must. It is the necessity of the cross that we see here. Because God is love and man is a sinner, God must remain just But he will also provide a salvation, a way of escape for his people. But he'll do it by crushing his son. The son of man must be killed. The son of man must be killed in order that the demands of justice might be satisfied. Four things stand out in the foretelling of Jesus' suffering here. Look at the text again. He began to teach them. The Son of Man must suffer many things and be, and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and three days later rise again. Four things stand out here. One is that Jesus is going to die. There's, there's just no getting around that. Jesus is going to die. We see also that his death is intentional. It's an intentional death. He intends it. He means for it to happen. Jesus isn't running away from anything here. He's walking right to Jerusalem. Third, this isn't suicide. This is murder. Jesus is not some kamikaze. This is not a suicide mission here. This is murder. And then lastly, he will rise from the dead. Not a question, it's a statement, it's a fact, and it is settled. Not at some uncertain time in the future like us, but in precisely three days, Jesus tells his disciples, his death is appointed and his resurrection is appointed. They will happen right on schedule. The chief priests, the scribes, the elders, they're not going to detour Jesus from his mission. They are not going to prolong Jesus' mission. Jesus will die and rise again right on schedule. Well, look at what Jesus tells his disciples here. Suffer many things is, uh, is probably kind of an umbrella statement. And then Jesus lists several specifics or several particulars there. The Son of Man will be rejected. He'll be killed. And after three days, he will rise. The word rejected there, it's the Greek verb apodokakidzomai. It's one of those that's kind of funny. Just rolls off your tongue there. It means to reject upon trial. It means to be disallowed acclaim. Or to be rejected upon trial. It even has the sense of being declared useless. Declared useless. Uh, matter of fact, there's a little three-letter uh, prefix on that Greek verb there. Apo, it means away from, away from. And so the compound verb there, rejected, as it's translated in our Bibles, means to reject a person after having put that person to the test 
trying to approve them, but upon trying to approve them, instead rejecting them. And the religious leaders put uh, Jesus to the test for the purpose of approving him as Messiah. The problem is he did not meet their approval. He did not meet their approval. Jesus was not the kind of Messiah that the Jews wanted. They wanted a military leader who would come in and who would liberate them from the oppressive rule primarily of Rome. They weren't looking for a savior who would free them from the bondage of sin, from the tyranny of sin and death. They were looking for a totally different kind of Messiah. The problem is is that there isn't a totally different kind of Messiah. There is one Messiah, one anointed one, one Christ, one son of man. Jesus tells his disciples here in verse 31, he, he, he he tells them what's going to happen. He tells them the Son of Man must suffer many things, be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes, and be killed, and after three days rise again. Which, by the way, we'll get here a little bit uh, later in our text in a few minutes, but uh, the, the disciples only heard rejected, killed. They did not even hear the and rise three days later. It's probably a good lesson there about being a good listener, not jumping to conclusions. We could probably all stand to grow in that area. But we know, we know what's going to happen. But what's the why behind the what? What's the reason? What's the why? We know, we know what is going to happen Jesus, to, to Jesus. We know that he, the innocent, will suffer at the hands of evil men, be crucified. He'll rise again. But why? Why, Jesus? Again, put yourself in the minds of the disciples. Isn't there another way? Isn't there a a possible alternate ending like in some books? Jesus would look at his disciples and he would say, No, fellas, there's no alternate ending. There is no other way. Jesus came to die. He came to be the slain Savior. He came to be the, the murdered mediator. He came to be the assassinated advocate. He came to be the lynched lamb. He came to be the crucified Christ. That's why he came. He came to die. And Mark gives us the specific why behind the what just a couple of chapters later in Mark 10.45. You don't need to turn there. It's a familiar passage probably to most of you. But Jesus in his own words said, For even as the, here's the phrase again, Son of man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And so what's the, what's the why behind the what? Well, the why is that Jesus came to be a ransom. He came to pay sin's penalty. He came to bear in his own body the full weight of our sin, to be subject to the full weight, the the unmitigated, unrestrained wrath of God, his Father. He came to purchase sinners from death. That's the why behind the what. And so I have a question for you, friends, here. If Jesus says, for the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many, are you a part of the many? Are you a part of the many? Is it true of you? 
You come to a place of humble contrition where you've seen your sin as being infinitely offensive to a holy God. Where you, like Isaiah, utter something to the effect of, woe is me, I'm undone, my eyes have seen the king. Where you realize that your sin deserves punishment. And you realize that God demands it. And you also come to realize that Jesus Christ, the Son of Man, the Anointed One, the Christ, the Messiah, hung on a Roman cross as a ransom. As the sinless Lamb of God slain for you. Are you a part of that many? I don't mean the many of the Christian culture. There's a, that's a whole other subsection of many who, who may know some Bible verses and, and may occupy 12 square inches of fabric in a pew in a church this morning somewhere across the face of the planet but have never come to a place of true repentance, a change of mind about your sin and faith in Christ and in Christ alone. There is a many that will not be saved. Because they're trusting either in themselves or they're trusting in their false assumption and view of a Savior who does not exist. And then there is the many who have trusted that Jesus Christ is the ransom. Which many are you a part of? I beg you, just like Paul did in 2 Corinthians 5, I beg you, I urge you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. Be reconciled. Just as we read this morning in communion, therefore, since we've been justified, justified means to be declared righteous, declared innocent, not because we are, but because we've been declared to be by God. Our sin paid for on Calvary's cross, Jesus' perfect righteousness imputed or invested in or deposited to our otherwise bankrupt account. Therefore, since we've been justified by faith, we have, what's the word? Peace with God. If you haven't been justified, friends, you have no peace. Are you a part of the many? Are you a part of the many? Who are the ransomed? Are you one of them? You certainly can be. And that's what the rest of this chapter, chapter 8, will dive into. Uh, this next Sunday, uh, we will begin to celebrate Easter, and so our attention will be specifically on a Palm Sunday text. And then the following Sunday, Easter morning, the 21st, and then we'll come back the following Sunday, three, three weeks from now, and we will finish up chapter 8. And what Jesus is going to do for the rest of chapter 8 is he is going to show us exactly what is demanded of the many. What are the implications of Jesus' messiahship on our discipleship? Okay? Maybe that'll whet your appetite for the weeks to come. Well, let me turn your attention to the second movement in the text here, and that is a series of rebukes. Rebukes. This is what we see in verses 32 and 33. I want you first to focus on verse 32. This is the first of two rebukes here. What we see here is Peter rebukes Jesus. 
Write that down if you're taking notes. Peter rebukes Jesus. Find verse 32 in your Bible there, chapter 8, verse 32. Read it with me there. And he said this plainly. Speaking about everything in verse 31. He spoke plainly to his disciples. And Peter took him, Jesus aside, and began to rebuke him. What does it mean when Mark notes that he, Jesus, said this to them or said these things to them plainly? Well, it simply means that Jesus held nothing back here. Jesus isn't speaking in parables like he has elsewhere. He isn't speaking to his disciples using hints or veiled allusions here. Jesus is speaking to his disciples plainly, clearly, forthright, unhindered in his speech. You might remember back to Mark chapter 2. Actually, flip there for just a moment. Mark chapter 2. Let me give you an instance of Jesus speaking in veiled allusions. Maybe that'll give you a little bit of context for how he is speaking plainly and what clearly looks like here in our text. Mark chapter 2, verses 19 and 20. Mark chapter 2, verses 19 and 20. This is the instance where uh, Jesus is asked why he and his disciples don't fast like John's disciples or why his disciples don't fast like the disciples of the Pharisees. And Jesus responded by saying this, Can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them and they will fast in that day. Okay, that is an example of speaking in veiled illusion. The bridegroom, Jesus says, he won't be with them always. Talking about his departure. He is the bridegroom in this picture here. But this is the picture of veiled illusion or speaking in parables. Jesus is no longer, you can turn back to Mark chapter 8, Jesus is no longer speaking that way to his disciples about his death. Mark uses the word parousia. It means that Jesus now spoke clearly, openly, frankly, unmistakably, and even boldly about his death. Not only did Jesus speak about his death openly, but the, uh, the, the, the Greek verb there, clearly, it's in the imperfect tense, just means continual action. All you need to know there is Jesus didn't just say it once. He began to continually tell his disciples in plain, clear language. What must happen to him? Mark tells us that as a result of Jesus speaking plainly to his disciples about his impending, his impending death, his suffering, his rejection, uh, Peter, oh, we love Peter. Let me, let me just, before I say anything else, let me just remind you something here, friends. You are him, and so am I, all right? We're not tossing Peter under a bus this morning. We are him, Okay? Peter takes Jesus aside and begins to rebuke him. The verb here means to, to take, and the prefix means to, to turn face to face. And so the idea here in the original language is that Peter took Jesus aside for a face-to-face -face conversation. We might say a man-to-man. -man. Jesus, or Peter rather, decides that it's uh, the right time to take Jesus aside and to Settle up and have a little man-to-man -man with him. A little face-to-face -face conversation. Again, Peter clearly understood Jesus' words in verse 31. Because Jesus spoke plainly. Uh, 
but Peter couldn't reconcile Jesus' view of a Messiah with his own misunderstanding of the Messiah. And so Peter began to rebuke Jesus for his supposed defeatist thinking. I mean, Jesus, if you really are the Messiah, if you really are the Christ, if you really are the anointed one, if you really are the, the long-awaited king who will sit on the throne, then why in the world do you have some sort of defeatist mentality? What, what is all this mess about you talking about you being rejected and killed? What are you thinking, Jesus? I think there's a lesson here to all of us that when we argue with God's word, which is exactly what Peter's doing here on behalf of the elders, or on behalf of the disciples, rather. When we begin to argue with God's word, we open the door for Satan's lies. We need to be clear about the fact that while Peter's rebuke of Jesus was a display of ignorance, I think it was also rooted in a deep love for Jesus. I mean, these men, Jesus' disciples, had absolutely come to love the carpenter from Nazareth who, who called them to leave their fishing nets and follow him. They had come to love him. And that also played into this misunderstanding. What do you mean you're going to die, Jesus? We love you. That's, you. No. Isn't there some other way? Isn't there some alternate ending? Certainly there is. Jesus says, no, I must. I must. Though they didn't understand, that's the the disciples, everything about Jesus' redemptive purpose and plan, they'd been with him long enough to know that whatever happened to him was sure to happen to them as well. Just let that stew for a moment, friends. These disciples had been with Jesus long enough to know that whatever happened to him was sure to happen to them as well. If there was suffering and death in Jesus' future, then there was suffering and death in the disciples' future. I mean, Jesus told these fellows early on, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. Just a few chapters later in John's gospel, Jesus tells his disciples, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they'll persecute you also. If they kept my word, they'll keep yours also. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name. Because they do not know the one who sent me. Jesus' disciples did not understand the relationship between the cross and the crown. They could not fathom, could not connect the dots of the relationship between suffering and glory. And so instead, Peter blurts out here, following Satan's philosophy, which is glory without suffering, instead of God's philosophy Suffering transformed into glory. And friends, I'll submit to you, whichever philosophy you subscribe to will determine how you live and how you serve. Let me rewind you, that's important. Is your philosophy, the philosophy of the evil one, just subtle glory without suffering? I'm just going to kind of coast on through the Christian life, glory without suffering. Or is your philosophy, God's philosophy, suffering transformed into glory? Again, again, whichever you subscribe to will have uh, dramatic uh, effects, will determine how you live and how you serve. Again, I said we, we have to be careful that we don't too quickly condemn Peter here. 
for his outburst or his poor perspective. I mean, have there not been many times where we ourselves have questioned God's way of thinking and suggested to him another way that lines up a little bit closer to our way? Everybody just go like this. Yes. Yes, we all have. And we'll do it again. And we'll need to repent again. Confess our sin to him again. Yes, every single one of us, without exception, has questioned God's way of working. Why, why, God? Why? Surely there's an alternate ending. Surely there's a plan B. Surely there's another way. As a matter of fact, let me tell you the better way. Right? We need to remember Isaiah's words in Isaiah 55. His ways are not our ways, and his thoughts are not our thoughts. So much higher are his ways than our ways, and his thoughts than our thoughts. The best thing for us to do is to get firmly settled upon his tracks and to travel down that road. Instead of trying to suggest to him how we know or have proposed a better way, the end of that story is never glorious. It's never glorious. Jesus is saying, Peter, if you resist my plan to die, you resist God. If you you side with Satan, it has disastrous consequences. Satan doesn't want me dead because he wants you in hell. Satan wants me to bow down and worship him. He wants me to jump off temples for fame and to turn stones into bread for self-preservation. The last thing he wants is a ransom paid for his captives. Peter, you're not thinking properly. You're not thinking properly. And so we see Jesus, or Peter rather, rebuke Jesus in verse 32. And let's finish this morning looking at verse 33. We see Jesus rebuke Peter. Look at verse 33. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Notice that Jesus focused his attention not only on Peter here, but on the rest of his disciples as well. Mark notes Jesus turning and seeing his disciples. Why is that? Why why isn't Jesus only addressing Peter? Well, the reason that Jesus isn't only addressing Peter is because the rest of the disciples agreed with Peter's assessment. That was the assessment that Jesus' statement concerning his death was absolutely preposterous. Peter said what the rest of the disciples were thinking. But Jesus isn't going to let their improper thinking ride unchecked. Jesus isn't going to let your improper thinking ride unchecked either. Jesus rebukes Peter. Look at verse 33, saying, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but rather on the things of man. Now, I would submit to you, submit to you friends, this is not a personal attack here. The words, get behind me, are literally go away behind or go away after me. I mean, Jesus' words here in verse 33 hark back to his temptation in the wilderness. Remember? Satan tempted Jesus when he took him to the very high mountain, showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. Satan said to him, all these I'll give to you if you'll just fall down and worship me. Do you understand what is, what is embedded in that statement? What is embedded in that statement is glory without suffering. 
crown without the cross. Just sidestep the cross, Jesus, and you can have it all. It wasn't his to give. Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and you shall serve him only. Again, Satan was tempting Jesus to sidestep the cross instead of receiving rulership of the kingdom by his accomplishment on the cross. In Mark chapter 8, Satan is using the key leader of the disciples here to again try and encourage Jesus to sidestep the cross. I don't think that, uh, that Jesus is calling Peter Satan here when he says, get behind me, Satan. I don't believe that's what we see taking place. Instead, I think Jesus is recognizing the source of Peter's words. I think Jesus is speaking directly to the tempter. He's speaking directly to the evil one. He's speaking directly to Satan. Matter of fact, Mark uses the exact same word here, rebuke, that was used uh, when Jesus rebuked the demon earlier in Mark chapter 1. Words like Peter's trying to turn Jesus aside from the cross show Satan's thoughts, not God's thoughts. This was the temptation that Jesus had faced and conquered in the wilderness, and it would be the same temptation that he will face and conquer in the Garden of Gethsemane just hours before his crucifixion. Again, it's the subtle whisper, glory without suffering. Glory without suffering. Jesus says, no cross, no crown. It's true for me, and it's true for my followers. How about this short phrase here? Give me 60 seconds of your time, and we'll land the plane. Mark uses the phrase here, you have your mind on the things of God, but not on the things. I'm sorry, you have your mind not on the things of God, but rather on the things of man. There are times when, like Peter, we need a strong rebuke. Especially, this is especially true when we're convinced that we're right, but we are just dead wrong. We... we we need a loving rebuke. We, we need that chide to get right back on the right road. In this moment, Peter's thinking wasn't focused on the things of God. Uh, Peter's thinking was, was not focused on God's way and his purposes, but rather on the things of man, on human values and on human viewpoints. I mean, Peter's thinking on a human level here, not on God's level. Man's way of thinking is glory, wealth, comfort, success, winning, healing, pain-free living, but the way to messianic glory, Jesus tells us, is through suffering. And that's what they're missing. And that's what Jesus is going to pick up in verse 34. We'll be there in three weeks. And he is going to help them understand the implications of his messiahship on their discipleship. What does it mean to follow me? What does it mean to give up your life that you might save it? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you that it is sufficient for all matters of life and faith. Thank you uh, that it is authoritative. God, when you speak, we are to listen. We are to obey your word. As a matter of fact, we demonstrate our love for you in our obedience. Jesus said to his disciples, and he says to us as well, if you love me, you will obey my commands. God, I pray you'd help us to do that. Give us a heart that is sensitive to obeying your commands. 
God, we know that we will fall. We know that we will falter. We know that we will sin. We know that we will transgress. We know where, that we will go where we have commanded not to go, say what we were commanded not to say. We will sin by way of commission in what we do, and we will sin by way of omission, not doing what you have explicitly commanded us to do. And for that, we repent. And we ask that you would forgive us, Lord. We know that... Uh, that if we come to you and we ask you for forgiveness, that you are righteous and just to forgive us all our sin. And uh, Lord, we thank you for that great hope. If you, O oh Lord, kept a record of sin, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness. Give us great joy in obeying Jesus' words. We love you. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.